Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Porter Podcast. My name is Beth Massa, and my sidekick, Michael, will not be joining us this afternoon because I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Nuria Spiker. She is the Chief Sustainability Officer of a company called Humbee here in the Netherlands. Nuria, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Nuria, I'm going to start you out with asking the question we ask everyone. Mm -hmm. Who are you and what do you come from? It's mm, a good question. Um, who am I? Ah, I'm a lot of things. Uh, and I suppose a chief among them is a farm mom because I, I love my little fur babies. I have two cats and two dogs. So I identify first as a fur mummy. Um, I'm uh, a woman who's uh, passionate about uh, a lot of things, specifically the environment, animal rights. Uh, I'm passionate about research. I've come from a background of academia and working really to see people who are changing the world for the better. And uh, a lot of that is ingrained in who I am. And what do I come from? It's, uh, it's a tough one. But I would say that I suppose I come from a sort of addiction to ambition. And that's partly informed by my upbringing, uh, partly by my home city, Nairobi, which by all accounts is one of those tough cities, uh, and partly by being a woman, more specifically an African woman uh, living in the West. Um, Nuria, I didn't hear the very first thing you said when you started to answer that question. Can you repeat that? Uh, I said, uh, I suppose I come from a sort of addiction to ambition, uh, which is partly informed by my upbringing, uh, partly by my home city, Nairobi, uh, which by all accounts is one of those really tough cities, and partly by being a woman, more specifically an African woman living in the West. Okay, beautiful. Great. And hey, Nuria, why are we talking today? Well, I think we're talking because uh, we're both passionate about sustainability and we both work in that sphere, uh, particularly in regards to the food industry and food services. And we got uh, connected by the really awesome Sami, uh, who was like, as soon as I spoke to him, it's like, you need to... You need to connect with Beth. You need to have a chat with her. And I was like, I think I do. And I I was really grateful for that connection because uh, I do think we have a lot of things in common, not just our passion, but also as uh, as women, as entrepreneurs. And I think that's why we're talking today. Sami she's referring to is Sami Serene, who is a co-founder of a company called Kiko, also here in the Netherlands, which... Um, among anything, uh, among several things, runs an academic program or a coaching program for people who are interested in getting into the hospitality industry with a special focus on food production. And, you know, when we first talked, Nuria, I think we, we talked for over an hour. Yes, and you did. What, and, and Sami also shares our 
passion for our collective interests. And I just love the fact that, um, let me say it this way. So conversations that I've had very recently, even in the last just couple of days or a couple of weeks, have been around finding people that you have something in common with beyond the things that we intrinsically gravitate toward from a tribal point of view, which is people who come from the same background or the same area of the world or that people who look like you, to be able to break out of that and find people who you have something in common with based on common values, which is something that you and Sami and I all share. And so it's really easy for him when he finds two people who are passionate about this, you know things that are at least adjunct related to go, you've got to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is the new paradigm that yeah. we're all putting each other in contact with as opposed to, oh, you guys went to the same university or, you know, your dads work together or were, you know, part of the same golf club or something like that. So this is something that is a new concept for me, but something that's also really easy to grasp and something now that I'm going to include in my line of vision is mm-hmm. I as I'm thinking about you know, who I want to bring together in the sort of constellation of all of us that have these common shared goals. So thank you, Sami, for putting me in touch with Nuria. Yes, um, yes. And I fully agree let, with you. Um, just to add on to what you said, it is very easy to gravitate to people who you share a, a common past with. But I found life to be so much more rewarding when you figure out that the people who belong most in your orbit are the people who you want to have a common future with. So that's um, it's a really good point that you make. Yeah. And it's not, by the way, it's not my point. It's something that I've been learning from experts that I'm go- also going to have yeah. on this podcast, but these are the ones that talk mm-hmm. about things like um, social currency. So mm-hmm. people, uh, the, the, the context within uh, where we've had these conversations is about how do you bring people who have a desire or a goal or a passion but don't have access to the network, how do you open up your network to them? Because they don't even know necessarily that the network exists or how to gain access to it. So these are the people that we need to to find and to pull in to mm-hmm. our vortex, like you said, our orbit. Um mm-hmm. So Nuria, you let's let's just start with start with the foundation because you have, you know, statistically quite an unusual background. Um, <laughs> you know, you you are a PhD, you are mm-hmm. an African woman, you came from mm-hmm. Nairobi, you now live here in the Netherlands. I would love for mm-hmm. you to share to share your story. Um, we know that we know that we're we're talking today because of our mutual friend Sammy, but let's go a little mm-hmm. bit deeper and um and, and and dig into your background of of you know, how how um, you came to the Netherlands? Yeah, um, well, a lot of uh, why I'm here is, is really part of my academic uh, trajectory, but also my personal trajectory uh, in terms of um, when uh, I was studying back in high school, you know, you're, you're thinking, what do I want to be? What do I want to do? And um, of course, having a firm grasp on exactly what that is, is sometimes beyond us. In fact, I sometimes find it crazy that 
we make 18 year olds kind of like stake their whole future on this degree or that degree when really they can barely decide what to eat for breakfast. So it's <laughs> weird that you have to make this life altering decision sometimes at that point. But what I did know at that point was I wanted to study lots and lots and lots. I was good at school. So I'm like, I'm just going to be in school forever. That's that's an awesome idea. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to study at that point engineering. But um, around the time when I was going to join uni uh, for my bachelor's, Kenya was going through this like really tumultuous situation. So I couldn't actually join the uni I wanted to because uh, there was a lot of uh, issues uh, after the elections. Uh, in the 2007 elections, things were just absolutely crazy. So what ended up happening was I moved to Uganda and I did my bachelor's there. And I had a little bit more limited options there. So I was like, the one I love the most out of all the options I have is to study environmental management, environmental science. And I was like, I love the environment. I love animals. I'm totally going to be a park ranger after this. And I can just spend all my time saving the last rhinos. And so I dove straight into that. At the time, I met a particularly charming batsman who very much confused me, not enough for me to not study hard, but enough for me to be like, okay, the next place I'll study is the Netherlands so that we can be a lot closer. And so when I was done with my bachelor's, I did my master's uh, in the Netherlands uh, to be closer with my partner at the time, who was Dutch. And so I moved all the way up north to Groningen and I studied my master's in environmental and infrastructure planning at uh, the University of Groningen. And when I was doing that, I um, met a lot of like uh, very fantastic and interesting people. And I got the opportunity to uh, do uh, a PhD. And like I said, it was my longtime ambition to just study forever. And I got offered uh, a research position in, in Belgium, actually, at uh, KU Leuven. That's the uh, University of Leuven. And uh, so I moved over to, to Belgium with my, my PhD there. And uh, after my PhD, I was like, oh, let me do stuff. And that's kind of the point where I really started on my entrepreneurial journey. And I ended up uh, finding Humvee, which is a little startup um, uh, with the founder, Ferenc Feinstra. And we started working together and that's kind of like brought me to the point I am now. So actually, I technically live in Belgium, but I work in the Netherlands. So I'm one of those people who is always hopping across the border. Those Dutch people and their magnetism, that's the first thing that everyone asks when you're an expat or a foreigner moving to this country. They always ask, oh, did you move for love? And, you know, I think that's because most of the time the answer to that question is yes. Why else? Yeah, yeah. There's no other reason to to, to move to this muddy backyard, I guess. Um, can you, um, you know, you I, I know so little about yeah. the day-to-day life of people who live in these African nations. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Kenya is considered at the most general level, one of the more stable, economically progressive countries in Africa. You had mentioned that you were faced with, I guess, some political upheaval that was mm -hmm. 
um, impacting you personally after the 2007 elections. Can you give us a brief history lesson on what was happening there and how it affected you? Well, I would say Kenya in, in many ways is shockingly uh, progressive and, and, and very modern. Uh, I think a lot of people who have never actually uh, visited Africa are surprised to find that life there, while being quite different, of course, the weather is different, the culture is different, uh, everybody looks not like uh, how you'd expect them to look like in the middle of Copenhagen or something like that. But very many things are fundamentally the same. Uh, people work hard, we have internet, we have, you know, all like modern universities, we've got people who are hard workers, lots of entrepreneurs. Um, but of course, Africa has a lot of uh, fundamental problems too. And these are problems which are not dissimilar to problems you find in the West. You just experience them from uh, quite different, um, like it's filtered through a different paradigm and different history. Of course, Kenya was um, a British colony. And uh, well, you know, on one hand, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? That's a hornet's nest I'm not even going to touch. Uh, but uh, after independence, of course, you have this kind of like tra trajectory of um, of finding your footing, of developing uh, um, character and a culture that's distinct from just being a British colony. And um, there are things that are legacies of the British. Uh, and one of them, I think, is quite famous because the British did this everywhere in the world, which is divide and conquer. And the best way to, to rule over a people is to make sure people don't unite against you. And so what uh, they did in, in, essentially as a political strategy was inform uh, and Africa. Uh, it's important to note here, uh, Africa is a, is a is very tribal place. I know Europe had tribes uh, back in the day, but I don't think uh, Europeans often think of them in the, themselves in this uh, kind of like you're from there, you're from there. It's more homogenous within a country. Whereas in Africa, every country has like a multiplicity of tribes. Kenya has that, Uganda has that, Nigeria has that. And you often find people identifying with their tribal culture, sometimes even before the national culture. And so, of course, the British played into this. And that is like a really strong, very deep-seated um, thing. And so, unfortunately, often what happens in, in the political sphere when people are trying to um, win power and to get ahead is they use these divisions. Like, I'm from this place. I want to advance the people here or I want to advance the people there. And this can breed a lot of deep-seated resentments and a lot of hatred, which is not, is not, I see like a part of it is, is natural. Humans are tribal creatures, but a part of it is very unnatural because these are political strategies. And often when you have a country that has such a deep divide uh, between those who have and those who don't have, it's very easy to stroke this resentment. You know, the reason you don't have this is because that group of people is taking it away from you. And that's kind of what happened at the end of uh, uh, the, the 2007 elections. Uh, elections and a lot of political issues in Kenya, in Africa more broadly, are, are very along tribal lines. And you'll find, okay, this is the candidate this tribe is trying to push forward because 
it'll push forward the interests of their people. And it's very unfortunate. It's, it's very unfortunate. But what happens is that when you have politicians who are stoking these resentments for their own benefit, it's never for the benefit of, of the average person, never. Yeah. And they stoke these resentments and that's how they win power. Um, and then it sometimes causes these like flare-ups of violence. And after 2007, it was a very divisive time. And I think it's taken a long time and still we have these issues. But um, this kind of like divisive history and this infighting causing these flare-ups of violence, you know, sometimes you're quite shocking. Because as you mentioned, I, I said it earlier, I'm from Nairobi. And Nairobi is a very cosmopolitan city. It's where every tribe comes from. You know, like everybody's mixed up in Nairobi. It's not a place that belongs to this tribe or to that tribe. And so even you'll find it like when I meet a Kenyan here and they're like, where are you from? And then I say Nairobi, they're like, yeah, but where are you really from? Because they're trying to find out what tribe I am. But my name doesn't really say it. So because in, in Kenya, you can tell somebody's tribe often by their name. Uh, people have tribal names. Uh, and my name gives no clues whatsoever. And then you add on top of that that I'm from Nairobi, which also gives no clues whatsoever. And it leads to a little bit of like, bit of a funny confusion where people are like, yeah, where, what are you really? You know, who are your people? And um, yeah, so there's a little bit of that alongside the fact that, yep, super modern country, progressive country, a country where you can do business, you can get ahead. But at the same time with these undercurrents of uh, tribalism, which of course feeds into a really huge structural problem in Africa, which is corruption. Because of course the people who are, uh, are stoking the tri tribalist fires are doing that for their benefit. Because it's easy to steal when everybody's paying attention to a different issue. Nobody's like, hey, wait, did you just defraud the country of... I don't know, one billion shillings, possibly. But did you notice that guy from the other tribe? Maybe took a little too. And it's, you know, so on one part, it, it, it frustrates me because I love Africa. I'm from Africa. And, you know, Africa is like a big part of who I am and my soul. But seeing these issues is very frustrating. But I will end on a heartening note because a lot of people like me, we're, we're younger. We, we don't have perhaps some of these like deep-seated uh, problems and resentments um, that perhaps a few generations ago were quite common. Like these days, I think it's fairly normal for people to intermarry between tribes, to, to like identify more from the city that they're from rather than the tribe they're from. And I think that's an only, uh, only positive thing because I think it's important to value culture but not to use your culture as a weapon against people who at the end of the day are just your neighbors. They have the same struggles, the same passions, the same hopes for a better country as you do. I think that if Amer every American heard your story, it would be such a beautiful opportunity to sort of mirror back what's happening in the U.S. right now. There's so many themes that you've touched on that are very topical in the yeah. U.S. right now, tribalism, mm -hmm. um, that question of, yeah, yeah, but who, where are you from really? Well, I'm American. Yeah, mm -hmm. but where are you from really? That question gets mm -hmm. asked to people who, you know, look Asian or sub 
um, or, you know, or, or of Indian descent or Ethiopian descent. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking specifically of Ethiopian communities in the town of Minneapolis or Lebanese communities in the town of Michigan city in, in, in Indiana. I, it, it, but people are asking that question based on your, um, you know, exterior attributes, the color of your skin, mm-hmm. um, or if you have a little bit of an accent and yes. in your case, you're asked that question because of your last name. Do mm-hmm. I have that correct? Uh, well, yeah, because my last name is, is Dutch, is of course. Dutch but yeah, but Nuria, which is my middle name, um, actually, it's the name everyone calls me by. But my full name is Stephanie Nuria Syker. Mm-hmm. And so the first name is is an English name, Stephanie. You know, it's it's a European version. Like most, a lot of Africans have this, yeah, like this Western name, John, Mary, whatever you know and then you have your middle name which is typically your your tribal name you know it's it's a name given to you by your grandparents like you're named after your grandmother your grandfather you know and then you have your surname which is also a tribal name it's like the name from you from your clan your people so those two names will quite often just tell you what somebody's tribe is you know but because my middle name is actually from my mother's culture and uh she has, she's from this really tiny tribe. Uh, they're called Burgi, and they are originally from Ethiopia, but they migrated, uh, like a great part of them migrated south to Kenya, like a few generations ago. So we have like Kenyan Burgis, of course, and then there are Ethiopian Burgis. But because it's such a teeny, teeny, tiny tribe, nobody thinks about it. It's not one of the big ones where the name would be quite obvious, you know? So I've got this like very obscure middle name, Nuria. When I'm in Europe, most people are like, oh, is that Spanish? Is that, you know, Arabic? It is actually also both from Spanish culture. I think uh, there's a valley somewhere outside Barcelona called Nuria. So when I go to Barcelona, everything is written Nuria everywhere. And I'm very excited about it. And it's also Arabic because it's from the root word Nur, which means light. And that is indeed the meaning of my name. It means light. And so it's very confusing culturally when your name doesn't identify you. Yeah. And so is this, God, I just, um, we really do find any opportunity to other, other people for our own benefit, don't we? Um, Because I think like the conspiracy theorist in me feels like that those in political power in the U.S., looked for historical examples on how to get themselves reelected. And they're like, oh, look at what the colonial, the English colonialists did in Africa. They divided and conquered the indigenous people by getting them mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to, 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 to basically participate in infighting with each other. And that way we can, mm-hmm. you know, separate them and get them, you know, do, get those allegiances that are beneficial to us. It's the exact mm-hmm. same thing that's happening in America right now. Like there's such polarization that's such, you know, tribalism. Um, oh, all yes. of the polit- politicians are like, oh, but we really need to come together. And I'm like, nobody wants to come together. That's the problem. And you guys perpetuated this. It's exactly. it's incredible Brilliant. to me that it's the exact same story with just a slightly different flavor um, mm-hmm. baked into it. Um, you know, so- frankly, it's mm. the most genius thing the British ever did yeah. because they have done it to massive success, not just in Africa. They've done it also in Asia, in, in India. You see it, too, where it's like, no, you know, 
and it and it's it doesn't really matter what is the point um of, of the things that you choose to be this is your differentiation whether it's religion taste tribe you know you just pick the thing and you're like this thing is what did this is the thing that defines you this is the thing to fight for when really what you should be fighting is for fair wages human rights you know the ability to like exist without like working yourself to death in, in, in like dangerous uh, in in a dangerous environment so you should be fighting for workers rights you should be fighting for a good life for your children you should be fighting for you know peace and happiness but instead you're fighting over whether you have the same surname it's so weird yeah, or if you have, you know, if you've been an undocumented immigrant in the U.S. for 30 years with a thriving business that that employs, you know, legal um, uh, people that were born at like normal people who were born in America, and you mm-hmm. you're paying it, your taxes, and then you get deported to Mexico because uh, you're some you know filthy illegal immigrant and you have no right to be here uh, on a technicality, you know. Um, this is something that Trump was very effective in doing and getting mm-hmm. his base all riled up about this thing that was basically mm-hmm. nothing more than an issue of paperwork uh, mm-hmm. for someone who is otherwise you know a totally productive member of a si- of society that just happened to not be born on this side of the Mexican American border. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, oh my goodness, that is uh, that is a that is really amazing that those those parallels can be drawn so easily between what was happening in your home country and what's happening what's happening now in my home country. Indeed, um, you know, it's like I said, Africa, of course, is is different, different culture, different weather, different geography. But if you look at the core of it, you know, there are so many things that are very similar. Mm-hmm. very very similar across the board and when you like look at it in that way you know and i think that's why people would prefer that you don't because you realize oh africans are just like me they have families they go to work they have struggles they get frustrated if they can't pay their bills they want to relax on a holiday it's like oh so they're just like british people or like people from sri lanka as in are we all our hearts just human beings who mm-hmm. want to have a good life and to enjoy the fruits of our labor and to love our families and to you know create a good environment for our children ah okay so maybe then being somebody who like participates in the exploitation of people whether that's within your own country or through of course things like colonialism or extractivism, then you you start to feel guilty because you're like, oh, I'm actually not better than other people. They're like me. So if I'm doing that, I must be pretty terrible. You know, but if you divide it like, no, we are different. You know, people from that place are lesser, worse, don't have the same values. Then it's much easier to, to do terrible things to each other. Even as a white woman coming to the Netherlands. And I think this is part of the Dutch culture. They would put quite a significant amount of effort into othering me, uh, either making fun of my, I guess, American enthusiasm or my, you know, making fun of my accent when I tried to speak Dutch on the one hand, you can look at it as their egalitarian way of, of, 
of almost welcoming you in a perverse sense. Like we need to make fun of you so that, you know, you're not better than anybody else. Cause in the Netherlands, everybody is exactly the same, but here you are this African woman pursuing your PhD in the North of the Netherlands in Groningen. What was your experience there in terms of that sort of cultural Dutch habit of, I would imagine, I would imagine because, you know, anytime that they're making fun of you, it's bordering on racism, which the Dutch are very comfortable still, unfortunately, in, 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 and pervasive <laughs> casual racism. What, what was your experience, if any, of them kind of pointing the finger at you and going, oh, you know, you're different than us and we're going to talk about it. Did that happen to you? Well, I'm going to tell you like a little story and this story, like really, really uh have stuck with me because people expect racism or some of these commentaries to look a certain way and this experience of mine like it wasn't the first time this happened to me so it really opened my eyes that wow racism is a spectrum and I don't even know what to say about it um in the beginning of my master's you know our Dutch masters usually have kind of like open introduction day where you can meet some of the people you're going to study with, your program directors, you're probably going to describe how a program goes, etc, etc. It's just like an intro day. And uh, of course, I'd already looked over what was necessary for my master's, the kind of classes I could do, the kind of, um, let's say, the, the specializations I could do, extra yeah, like courses I could take. And I, coming from um, like a very core, heavy course load, which is uh, quite normal in, in Africa, you know, if you're if you're going to school, it's study hard. And African parents, and I think yeah, Asians have this as well. Your parents are always like on you to like be doing the most. There's no slacking off. There's no taking things easy. So when I show up and I get my schedule e effectively, and it's like super empty. It's like I have two completely three days in the week. I'm like, why do I have free time? Free time is weird. So I go up to the program director and I checked out all the extra courses I could do. And I was like, you know, I very much like to do uh, like an extra course. It's, it's a course I really like to fill up my extra days. Um, so I, I bring this up to him because in order to do an extra course, you actually need uh, the approval of your program director. And I was like, uh, can I do this? And I think a point to note is uh, I graduated from my bachelor's with like first class honors. That's the, the equivalent of like a cum laude. Uh, and so I, I wasn't an academic slouch, you know, and I, I go to him and I explain uh, what I want and the reason for it. And he told me, and he was super sweet. He was so nice. He was like, you know, uh, I really wouldn't recommend that. The 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 first year is it's, it's brutal, you know, it's so, so difficult. We give you those 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 three days because you really need it. It's like really so, so, so hard. Like if you took on an extra course, you know, it would put such a strain on you that you wouldn't manage with uh, your regular course. And I was like, yeah, okay. Uh, he's the program director. He has experience. He's been dealing with students for a long time. Uh, I, I trust his word, you know. I've never done a master's in the Netherlands, so uh, he knows what he's talking about. And I said, okay, sure. And I, I left it alone for the semester. And of course, um, as time passes, 
you get to know other students better, you make friends. And um, well, at some point I was sitting with a few of my friends who were all Dutch, you know, they were all white Dutch uh, people. And I was talking about how I had this day three and I was like, well, you know, I don't even have anything to do. And they were like, what? As in, you have extra courses, you know? As in, the schedule was so empty that we just asked for them, you know? And I was like, yeah, I did that, but I was told it's super hard and like it, it shouldn't be done. And they were like, what? No, people don't even ask you anything. You just go say you want it and they just put it there, you know? And I'm like, the program director? Then he's like, yeah, the program director, just like, it's not even a question. And I was like, you know, in your mind, and it's not always the case, you know, but, you know, especially when you're a foreigner, a person of color, I think in your mind, you're like, was that racism? Or am I like thinking too hard about it? Like, but he was being nice, you know? And this is the first time like I kind of encountered what I, I came to realize is like benevolent racism, where it's like, you know, people like you could never handle this. I, I realized at the end of the day, that's what he was telling me in so many words. You are a foreigner. You're an African. They don't do well here. So why stress yourself? You are never going to succeed to the level of a Dutch person. That, that's the breakdown of it. And, I'm um, glad they came to that conclusion because my rule of thumb in these situations is if somebody says something to me that causes me to second guess myself or make me feel like I'm the crazy person, mm-hmm. I at that, at that moment I go, nope, it's them. They're the ones with the problem. They're gaslighting me. And it took <laughs> me a really long time to kind of figure that out. And I'm glad that you yeah. were, you're, you're, you're so obviously like way more... Um, more intelligent than I am anyway. So it's no surprising that you, no surprise you were able to figure that out right away. It took me decades, but that that is what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was that. And, you know, it, it was so like, it, it was really awkward. And at, at that point, there's like no going back. Of course, you know, this is like halfway into the semester. So I couldn't change anything. But anyhow, so I just let the end of the semester roll through, do my exams, you know. And essentially, I was like, right near the top of the class, as in my results did not put any doubt as to my my academic capacity. Uh, And so the next semester comes about, and again, uh, I feel my schedule is too empty, and I go up to him and I I ask him essentially the exact same thing I did the first time. And true to the experiences of my Dutch colleagues, he didn't ask anything. He just gave me an approval to up my course load by a higher degree than I'd even asked for in the first place. So what I realized is that essentially um, the, the situation is that as who I am, and whether that's as a woman, because being a woman has its own uh, landmine field of things you have to tiptoe across, um, and being a Black person has those, and being a Black woman has an intersectionality of those. And if you add on being an immigrant, there are all these different things coming into play, is that I always have to prove myself. Nobody takes it as a given that I'm intelligent. Nobody takes it as a given that I'm capable. Nobody takes it as a given that I will succeed. I have to do the work first to prove myself. I need to achieve things. And then people are like, ah, so you can write and read. Ah, 
the PhD. <laughs> ah, that makes sense. She has a PhD. She can write, guys. She can write, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's She's really literate, funny because yeah. Yeah. he's literate, you know, and it's like you always have to have come from a viewpoint where you're proving yourself. Whereas I realize a lot of other people, and sometimes it's a function of your gender, sometimes it's a function of your race, sometimes it's a function of whether you come from wealth or you don't, where people have these assumptions that you belong, you are good as is. You don't need to do any test. You don't have to jump through any hoops for people to accept who you are or what you are, or that you're capable of doing certain things. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird because I've kept encountering that. Like, literally, yeah, the master's situation is just one, but you encounter that every so often. And it's funny because I rarely use my, my, my doctor title, but... The, the number of times where people like, you have a PhD, as it's like, yes, it is possible. People from all over the world have PhDs, you know, as in every kind of person you can imagine in your head can also have a PhD. That's not to say that all of them do, but that it is possible for them too. So you shouldn't assume because somebody is from this country or has that skin color or has that gender or that disability that, oh, that means they can't achieve let's face it, what the default human being, which is a white man, can achieve. Because it's like, that's the standard you're being held to. Yeah. yeah. Which is weird. That but concept of intersectionality is something, again, that I've only recently really understood what it meant. Uh, I went through a little workshop and I was like, okay, I get this now. And it's almost like, how many checks in the boxes, how many boxes can you check in terms of how many sections are being, you know, intersectioned mm-hmm. among each other. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like, okay, Beth Massa, um, you know, foreigner, woman, you know, I don't speak Dutch very well. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's three. I've always mm-hmm. in my life too, always been underestimated. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's always very, and it motivates me so that mm-hmm. I'll show you motivation has really gotten me through um being successful in the enormous challenges that I've um, taken on, that I've chosen to take on. The mm-hmm. Netherlands in its brand of, of racism or sexism or otherism or whatever mm-hmm. is especially interesting. And I have spent over a decade having difficult and nuanced conversations with some of my closest Dutch friends about this. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, they pride themselves on tolerance, which by no means is the same thing of is acceptance. That's and on so the, true. And on the other hand, you know, it's this tiny country that's outward looking, and yet, you know, the, and they love to travel, and and therefore, I'm always very surprised at how provincial and outdated this country is in terms of non-Dutch people. As an example, they still use the, the Dutch word for mongoloid to describe people with Down syndrome, which in the U.S. that has that word hasn't been used since like the 40s or 50s. Um, I saw once we were in line at the coffee bar at the at the Dutch subsidiary of this internationally famous. It's one of the top four most famous tech companies in the whole world that I used to work for at the Dutch subsidiary, mm-hmm. and we were in line at the coffee bar. And I saw one of my colleagues, this sweet, lovely woman, young woman, singing some Dutch uh, children's nursery rhyme song 
that involved, uh, I, I don't remember the lyrics. Any Dutch person hearing this will know the song, speaking mm -hmm. about an Asian person. And she actually pulled her eyes back as she was talking about the slanted eyes of, of an Asian person. And I was so shocked, like viscerally shocked to my core that I snapped at her. And I think I almost made her cry, but I just, it was just such a natural reaction. And I said yeah. to her, and I won't say her name again, the sweetest, loveliest girl. I'm like, oh my God, did I just see you do what I think I just saw you do? I'm like, do you realize that if any, you know, American employee from this company saw you do that, you would be fired on the spot. Are you kidding me? And then she was just <laughs> as surprised at my reaction as I was at her doing this. And I realized like how much of the mark of Dutch people are missing with this stuff. And then of course there's the great big baddie, the whole Schwarte Piet issue. <laughs> Let's get into it. It's all, it's the season. Years yeah. of conversation I have had about Schwarte Piet. And what baffles Dutch people, and this is like the benevolent side of their racism is they're genuinely confused why people are upset because they love Schwarte Piet. They don't understand how hurtful the, char the character of Schwarte Piet is. And then we finally got down to distilling the essence of the Schwarte Piet debate, I think. Mm -hmm. And the question that I asked my friend, who we've had the Schwarte Piet conversation for many, many years, I said, I think this, what this comes down to is this, whose feelings matter more? Your feelings, Dutch people, because you love Schwarte Piet? or the feelings of the people who are hurt by the Schwarzschild stereotype. That's all the, it's up to you to decide, to decide whose feelings matter most. And yes, you are absolutely right to compare this to, you know, American traditions like Thanksgiving, which is, you know, or Columbus Day, which are, you know, mm -hmm. days that are like memorial, of like Holocaust memorial for indigenous American people. Absolutely mm -hmm. a credible point that needs to be discussed. True. But I think that that's what this comes down to. And I think that Dutch people are finally starting to understand that the people whose feelings are hurt by the Schwarzschild stereotype matter. And I think that's why they're starting to see this change. But but you're just never going to get anywhere if you go on the, these tribal lines where the whole entire world is saying to Dutch people, your one little tradition is offensive to the rest of the world and therefore you are not allowed to do it. You don't get anywhere. You have to do the work. You have to force yourself with the discipline of empathy, even if you don't want to. I mean, I remember the first time I was exposed to Schwarte Piet, I was at the company I just referred to. And I had, mm -hmm. I had just, I had to bet at the company like a year. I had never heard of this character. I had no idea. You know, <laughs> it was, I, I was, it, it, I had no idea that this even exists. And the very first time I saw Schwarte Piet, um, we were in an all hands meeting. So the entire company was sitting in this auditorium and mm -hmm. all of the management team, the general manager and all the directors show up on stage in blackface. And I almost threw up. Like, again, it was such a strong visceral experience because I didn't know what I was looking at. Yeah, it and looks like a minstrel too. I was like, am and I it's supposed very to shocking. leave the room? Like, what's it was shocking. And again, they were so shocked that I was so shocked. I'm like, what the mm -hmm. fuck is this? Sorry for my friend. <laughs> you know, I'm like, this this is a beloved ch child's character. What? And that's where the whole thing began. 
So and that was, you know, 15 years ago. Um, but That's anyway, crazy. I think so if, crazy. You, if you give the Dutch the benefit of the doubt that this comes from a place of affection and that they need some time to to understand that, that they want to live on the global stage, which I think that they do, that they're going to have to make some changes here. Um, what, what confuses me is that I feel like they have such an, an inbuilt out because... Yeah, Swati Pito shocked me too the first time I came to the Netherlands. I was like, what in the ever-living flying hell is this? <laughs> yeah. but, but, okay. But you see, you get these like different explanations. And one of the most common explanations is like, no, he's not meant to be black. He's a, a sort of chimney sweep and that's yeah, why right. his skin is dirty. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... Is was there also a tube of red lipstick in that yeah. chimney? What's going on? Because now I will admit that a lot of Dutch most. people have curly hair, so I was like, okay, let's. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous As that it, they would say that. Oh, so it's yeah. like, but if you're going with this whole chimney sweep story, mm. I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt and just make him look like a chimney sweep. These there are no tubs of shoe polish or lipstick in chimneys. Maybe I, I don't know, as in, I don't know, I don't have a chimney, so maybe mm. I need to, you know, ask chimney having people. They may keep like, like L'Oreal vamp red lipstick in those chimneys, you never know. Yeah. Who knows, you know, this is this is a question you Yeah. But I always want to point it back to, to them, and then we're going to move off the Schwarzschild thing. But I'm like, okay, let's talk about Dutch stereotypes for a second. Let's pretend the Schwarzschild is three meters tall. He weighs, mm-hmm. you know... um. 40 kilos he has crazy dried out frizzy curly hair he -hmm. has you know maybe a stammer or a stutter which a lot of dutch people have he has a weak chin and some sort of strange like birthmark on his face which a lot of dutch people do but oh Mm -hmm. we love him so much like how would you feel about that if we took your you know typical attributes and exaggerated that would that not be hurtful to you even if we loved you know Schwarze Joost or whatever, or Witte Joost, <laughs> you know, how would you feel about that? And if his mouth was covered in chocolate from eating too much hachelslach and, you know, yeah. he had bad breath because he's, you know, 28 years old and still lives on a diet of milk and cheese and yogurt. I'm like, uh, you know, how would you feel about that? Because those are the, those are the outward attributes I think of like a stereotypical Dutch person. Um, but know, they, they, they can't funny. really hear that. It's too, they get upset. So I'm like, oh, you're upset. Okay. Well, Maybe that's something to think about, you know. Sorry, did you I know, hurt your feelings? <laughs> you know, it's 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 really interesting because like and maybe I'm a little bit ignorant on this because I have traveled to a lot of places, but yeah, I've never really uh heard of uh any culture in the in the world. And if there is, as in I'm happy to be educated where a, a, a kind of caricature is made. And I don't mean like a caricature in some like cartoonist column, but I mean like a cultural figure that everybody would instantly recognize, but is based on a white man. But yet you see it with black people, with Asian people. Mm-hmm. They, they're these like, as in, even in, in like popular cartoons, like if you look at the Simpsons and you have a character like who, and they make him like the most like hardcore, most stereotypical Indian, you know, and they go full blown with the accent. I think actually the actor that does it isn't even an Indian, actually. No. And you see it in, in casting with 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 Hollywood movies. If you're gonna have um 
an Asian character, even if the actor themselves has probably some neutral California accent or Ohio accent, because that's where they grew up, they're asked to like play up their Koreanness or play up their Indianness or play up their Nigerianness, you know, for the sake of matching what the, the the writer thought this character should be. Like because of course if your name is 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 Adebayo, you must be somebody who is like super Nigerian. Or if your name is, you know, Li Min, you must be like super Chinese. Whereas in the world we live in now, Li Min is just as likely to be a coder from San Francisco as he is to be anything else. You know? That's right. Why would he be super like a caricature of any particular nation? But you never see it in the reverse. Like in, in Africa, we don't have something like this. You know, of course, we have these, you know, they always stereotypes of what white people do or, or, or how white people are. And this is a lot of it is from colonialism and a lot of tourism. So you always have that kind of like, oh, you know, white people have more money, white people are like this, you know. Uh, but yeah, that's informed by history. And indeed, some of this complete nonsense, you know, as in, I can admit that. But there's no actual like, oh, here is, as you say, Vita Pete or Vita Yost, you know, let's it's make fun of him. <laughs> yeah. Let's all make fun of him and let's all like pick on yeah, this exaggerated. No, there's nothing like that. And I've never heard of that in China or, or in Malaysia or in, you know, Chile. I've never heard of them being like, here is this other race, let's make fun of it. But yet, if you come to Europe, you go to uh, America, you will find these like, here is this, like you just see them and you know who this person is supposed to portray. As you said, somebody pulling their eyes or somebody doing that. And it's like, whoa, did you have a meeting? <laughs> did you all sit down and agree to be really hateful to a certain group of people? You must have. Because it's a general meeting racist where they agree. <laughs> is it secret? Yeah, I know. And Apu, Apu is such a perfect example. So the, I'll say who this is. So my friend Ivonadia, she's my best Dutch girlfriend, and she's often a repeated guest on uh, the podcast. So I feel comfortable saying her name. And we've had, she's the one I have the Schwarte Peak conversation with. And she said to me, what about Apu on The Simpsons? And I said, yeah, but that's different because we love Apu and we have affection for Apu. And when he says, take your purchases and get out and come again, we love that. We find that very sweet. And then I found myself saying the exact same thing she was saying in defense of, of Schwartopit. And she's like, aha. And I'm like, oh, you're right. It's the exact same feeling that we had for Apu that you have for Schwartopit, and you're absolutely right. And it and it's you know outdated, and it's a character that should be retired. And you got me. And then on the long tail of that, when you had just mentioned Amnuria um, about we don't have any like white men or their stereotypes, this is another thing that we brought into our conversation with mm -hmm. Ivana and mine. She's like Santa Claus. He's fat. And, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but everybody loves him. And he's also he gives a present. She's like, but he's fat. And that's fattest. And maybe, maybe, you know, he shouldn't be overweight. And maybe that's a negative stereotype. And I'm like, oh, now we're getting quite woke if we have to go to Santa Claus. But you know what, let's let's explore everything. Let's bring everything up to the surface and talk about it and see if it's something that needs to be adjusted. Why not? You know 
I always thought he was he was he was a bit chubby because he's a slave owner who doesn't do any work for himself. That's one but, way of looking at it, Nerea. <laughs> as in all the elves are the ones toiling away. He's just sitting mm-hmm. around as in he didn't even walk to deliver anything. He has the poor reindeer pull his ass everywhere. Yeah, those reindeer. <laughs> as in free Rudolph, you know, who yeah. is that campaign? And but, Rudolph, Rudolph was othered because he was different because of his yeah, nose. Yeah, because of his nose. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I find that so, like, there are stories I've read of Rudolph. I'm like, this is bringing a tear to my eye, the poor guy. Poor and then finally, Rudolph. when they have a use for him, then they're like, oh, come here with your weirdness. We finally found a function of it. Can you, like, yeah. lead us through the fog? And I'm like, leave the poor boy alone. You know? Yeah. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have to be at the front just because of his nose lights up. You know, yeah. That's up yeah, but it's like, I feel sad for Rudolph, you know, I'm on a full-blown Rudolph campaign, he's my fave, you know, I don't know yeah. about Vixen and Blixen, to hell with them, but Rudolph, yes, that's my boy. And, you know, and there's the all... elves, somebody needs to free them and give those them a elves, union Those or elves, they need to unionize, they... they need to go on strike, demand a pay raise. I you know? I'm on I'm on that train. I think everybody should be unionized personally, you know, but of course that doesn't serve the interests of big business. It doesn't. So you want to fight against that, you know, because why would your workers need a living wage or good working conditions? That's that's horrific. That would be at the bottom line. How will I be a billionaire if people don't pee in bottles, you know? But it's impossible. <laughs> it's not it's not possible. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, it also makes me think about, um, the, the older classic Disney cartoons that traumatized me as a child. When I think about the movie Dumbo, the only scene that I can remember is when the mom is in a circus prison and she's, mm-hmm. you know, stroking her little baby with his giant ears. He's on the outside mm-hmm. of her prison with his little, her little trunk. And I'm sobbing because it's so sad. Or when Bambi's mom dies in a horrible forest fire, like what was he thinking Ooh. about these like children's movies? It just, I, I, I can't watch oh, those movies. They're brutal. too sad. You but know, to be fair, it is based, like, a lot of these stories are based on, like, not, I don't think Bambi or Dumbo in specific, but a lot of these stories are, like, based on these, like, classic European fairy tales, and mm. Disney actually softens them up quite a bit, because if you read, like, the originals for, like, Hansel and Gretel, or The Little Mermaid, you know, it's, like, half of it is involving, like, you know, trigger warning, uh, self-harm or like severe mutilation death as in those are normal things that they used to tell their kids ah damn you know so disney kind of softens them up and ends with this weird oh yeah our sugar daddy is the solution to all of your problems you know Maybe that's the handsome french sugar daddy yeah well they didn't soften them up enough for me your eggs i still have oh just shudders down my spine thinking about that stuff (laughs) hey let's talk about real animals for a minute so you you had said you you know you're kind of like my husband michael who you know i i do uh recordings with him almost daily if if he could be paid to stay in school for the rest of his life all he would do is collect degrees i'm in such admiration of you book learners who are academically minded who can read and study and retain information which is something that i am utterly incapable of unless i'm actually out in the field 
And my social media feeds are filled with videos and images of people who work in, you know, chimpanzee or gorilla or orangutan or, Mm -hmm. or elephant sanctuaries. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking what better job could there be in the whole wide world than to hang out with gorillas and chimps and orangutans and elephants all day long. And I see oh. that. I think you were thinking that, that was something that you wanted to do too. Like, yes. why aren't we, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing the most because, awesome job in the whole world? Because um, sometimes life just sends you in like strange paths where you kind of like diverge at some point from what you really wanted to do. But if I was told right now I could make um, a decent living and I don't even mean as much as I make now, but just like I can have a decent life with some good food and I can afford pet food for my pets while snuggling with elephants and like scrubbing their backs, I would be like, send me on that train. I do not need a corporate life. I will happily shovel elephant shit out of their enclosure and make sure their trunks are clean and all of that. I'm like, sign me up. Sign me up today. I want to be Dumbo's caretaker. You know, I'm okay with that. Aren't there programs where you can kind of do that? You can pay to be sort of a tourist and you can actually pay to like muck out elephant stalls and I would do the same. But then I wonder like, is that good for the animals? If, is this like a real thing or is this like an exploitative thing that actually isn't great for the animals? Um, Mm, I think it really depends on the place because, um, and this is the reason why people don't just casually do this stuff um, in Africa because Africa is not a place with like zoos in particular. That's not what we do. We have wildlife sanctuaries. So Mm -hmm. for the most part, wild animals live in the wild. They do not have caretakers. People wait, they will kill you. As in, it happens every year. People are warned, please do not roll down your windows while driving through this um, safari park or something like that. And there's inevitably somebody hanging out of their window trying to get a shot of, of Mufasa and Simba with their cell phone and they get eaten and that's normal because lions eat things you know so, so don't do that people um so this like very close proximity between wild animals and people is not so much a thing in in, in a lot of african countries we do have animal orphanages and this is often where animals that have been injured or in some way, like separated from their their parents, are taken in by gamekeepers and raised by hand because otherwise they would die. So that is the closest thing we have to like a zoo. Like Nairobi has like um, an animal sanctuary right next to the Nairobi National Park, you know, which by the way, only city in the world that has a full-blown national park within its borders, you know. So Nairobi is very cool for that. But you see, so your, your chance to like work super close with animals would be like at the animal sanctuary, which has like, yeah, it has some lions, it has cheetahs, you know. Um, but on the other hand, when you look at somewhere like Asia that has much smaller elephants, not as wild and dangerous as African elephants, and that have been like used in domestic um, uh, labor for centuries, um, then you have this much more tourists interacting with a wild animal scene. And sometimes it's very, very exploitative, you know. It's like you're paying to ride the elephants and you're paying to do this. And the last time I was in Asia, I actually went to an elephant sanctuary, but they're like, here, we don't allow anyone to ride the elephants because they're meant to be free. We shouldn't be using them like pack horses, you know, just for somebody to get like selfies for their Instagram that they did this and this in such 
close proximity uh, to, to, to elephants, you know. So you can pet them and you can feed them snacks, but you can't ride them and you can't make them work, you know. So I think it really depends on the country and how the, the sort of wildlife they have, uh, how they manage the kinds of interaction between people and the wildlife, you know. So there are places that are really strict. Like I know in Rwanda, I don't think you can go around petting the silverback gorillas, you know, because they're going to beat the lizard shit out of you. You're going to die. You know, silverback gorillas don't mess around. No. But you can go on a tour and like watch them like from a respectful distance. So I guess it depends on the wildlife, depends on the country and depends on how they manage it. One time I was in the U.S., in my, uh, I was making a trip back to Seattle and mm-hmm. I stopped into an Urban Outfitters and there was mm-hmm. this giant poster, almost like wallpaper, huge on one of the walls. And I saw this, the, the scene it was projecting made me instantly in the middle of the store burst into tears. And it was mm-hmm. a scene from the main souk, the main square mm-hmm. in uh, Marrakesh. Mm-hmm. And it was a scene of something I saw in person that anybody who goes to that area of Marrakesh, which is everyone's at the center, mm-hmm. um, will see, which is baboons who have metal collars, stiff collars around their necks, hooked to chains. And the baboons hold on to the chain so that they can kind of create a buffer between the the owner, like pulling on the chain and the pulling on their neck. And they make them do tricks and you can, you know pay to have one on your shoulders you can have a picture taken and then you see them get into this tiny little cart they're all trained to get into the cart and then they get carted away and I saw that and I burst into tears in the center of this of of Marrakesh I can it's I would be if you ever needed an an actress who can cry instantly I'm one of those people (laughs) because all I have to do is think of every single time I've seen a suffering animal and I'm just you know in a puddle and then when I saw that at Urban Outfitters, I wrote to the company, I'm like, are you are you actually showing a picture of animal slavery as if it's like this cool exotic thing in the middle of your store? Like, what is this? That, um, that is not cool. That is not cool, you know? I, I, <sighs> My experience of baboons is that they should just be wild and stealing shit because they love to steal shit and they should just be allowed to do so. They're so good at stealing. <laughs> They're so good and they are violent. So do not confront a do not they confront are. a baboon. My- I know Lion King confused people by calling Rafiki, which is Swahili for friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you met those baboons that have the kind of bluish faces, no, they're not your friend. Leave them alone. I have a little dog. Her name's Poppy, and we adopted her oh. from an animal sanctuary in the Gambia. And mm-hmm. she is really, really nervous to go into the forest. She needs all four of us. She needs our other dog and Michael and me. We go into the forest mm-hmm. by our house. Mm-hmm. And she prefers sort of flat land or where she can be up high on like a dead tree so she can look out mm-hmm. because the forest mm-hmm. to her means baboons and, you know, snakes or alligator out of the alligators in in, uh, in the in the Gambia. Mm-hmm. But she had uh, puppies and mm-hmm. the puppies stayed behind and we adopted the mama dog. But two of the pop mm-hmm. puppies have, are mm-hmm. like tripods now because they were attacked mm-hmm. by baboons and they're, you know, broke their leg and they'd amputate the leg. Oh, Those no. baboons, baboons are, they are vicious. They're very violent. Yeah, yeah so... they're violent. So, but still, I don't think that they deserve to be, you know, chained up in the middle of an, you know, an urban mm-hmm. center in, uh, in Marrakesh. 
Mm. No, because like, first of all, violence is part of their nature, mm. and they they have their own social hierarchies and their social dynamics. You know, the only reason a human being would know by personal experience that a baboon is violent is if they have crossed into baboon territory, and so you're somewhere you shouldn't be doing something you shouldn't be doing. Otherwise, their violence and their social hierarchies are none of your business. None you of your know? business. Yeah, yeah, because you... these are wild animals. It's like complaining that lions like eat zebras. It's like, yeah, but that's what they do. What are you doing, like with your hand up a zebra's ass? You know, you got bit <laughs> as it did. Leave them alone. These are wild animals. They should be doing their wild animal things. You know, these are hierarchy and an order in nature. And I think the reason people are like, oh, you know to Harambe or whatever, because some kid fell into his, his enclosure. The problem is that Harambe is in an enclosure at all. He should be free, living his best, you know, ape life. But, you know, you you take animals out of their natural habitat or you encroach on their natural habitats. Like in Africa, it's a big problem with elephants and farms. People are like, oh, the elephants are crossing onto the farm. In reality, that farm was part of the elephant's natural territory. And now you're there. So, yes, he's going to walk there, too. And then you're going to complain. And because elephants in Africa are quite large, much larger than Asian elephants, it can be a deadly interaction. Yeah, this is the this is, you know, an ongoing debate everywhere. It's like, well, we encroach on the habitat of wildlife for agriculture and then the wolves or the hyenas or whatever come in and kill all of your chickens and your uh, your cattle. Whose fault is it? it? Yeah. You know. This is a conversation that I have with vegans a lot, especially vegans that are interested in animal welfare. I'm like, listen, every single thing in the world that's alive dies. And a lot of it dies because it becomes food for something else. And I actually don't think I wouldn't mind if I'd lived like a pretty long life, like just throw me to the lions, you know, maybe knock me out ahead of time. Because I don't think it would be so nice to die with having like a giant set of incisors in your neck. But if you get fed to a lion, that's a lot faster um, processing of your corpse than composting or putting you on, you know, in the grave forever. I think that that would be like, okay. I don't think that I would mind, you know, disposing of my, of my body. And, and if, mm-hmm. if an, a lion would find my 85 year old body, like tasty, which I doubt that it would, but, um, but this is a conversation that we have to have a lot. I have to have an honest and difficult conversation about the consumption of animals. Um, mm-hmm. I think that as long as an animal has lived a natural life and experiences, you know, a minimal amount of stress at, at the end of its life, I think it's okay to eat it. And this is one of the reasons why I kind of admire, you know, ethical and responsible farmers. I have, or hunters, I have a cousin who's mm-hmm. a lifetime hunter. And a lot of our family's like, I can't believe you go to the woods and kill those beautiful deer. And I'm like, no way, Ryan, I completely support you because that deer's going to die anyway. And, it, you know, and Ryan is like, every time he calls it harvesting, every time I harvest a deer out of the woods, it always, I always feel emotional about it. It's not pleasant to watch an animal die that you've killed, but he knows how to dress it. He knows how to, mm, how do you say, like butcher the animal. And it's, and um, I admire that he confronts the death of an animal that he's going to eat as opposed to like buying it in a supermarket. 
you know, um, I really admire that. And plus where he lives, if we didn't harvest these animals, they're, they're overrun anyway. So they're not starving. Yes. I'm like, do you want that mm -hmm. animal to starve to death or do you want it to experience some, you know, a significant amount of discomfort for maybe like the last hour of its life? Like you pick, or do you want it to die of disease? Like it's, it's like people forget that the world we live in is savage and brutal and violent and, um, and, you know, if we remove ourselves too far from it in either direction, either by going, oh, we can never kill an animal or factory farming, then everything falls out of balance. Uh, so oh, we I 100 percent agree. And, you know, uh, not, not everybody knows this, but, you know, part of what I did uh, for my Ph.D. research, I'm also a very uh, hands on academic type, as in books are fantastic, but I like being in the field as well. And I was researching essentially self-sufficiency uh, and like alternative practices in the food system. So yes, I spent time with everyone from preppers, hunters, and I have, just like you, a very deep respect for people who hunt for their food. As you say, it's very easy to sit on your high horse when you only buy meat that has been prepared for you. You don't have to confront what it is, take a life. And to to then be nourished by that, you know. And so anybody who does that, first of all, will consume way more ethically than people who are a thousand steps removed from from the actual slaughter of animals. They will con con consume more responsibly because you know how how much hard work it is. It's hard work to track an animal. It's hard work to dress an animal. It's hard work to butcher an animal. It's hard work. To, to basically know how to properly store that meat, you know, because it's not like you go out and hunt a deer every day. Usually you take down one for the season. That is your season of meat. Often families will split it between each other because it is a lot of meat and you don't want it to spoil because you have such a respect for the process. And so it's very yeah. easy, as you say, to sit on your high horse and be like, oh, I would never, how did you kill an animal? Do you eat? Do you have leather shoes or a leather purse? You know, something died for that. And it's much better to have full and due respect for a creature that has lived its life. And as your cousin puts it, they are harvested, you know, because ecosystems need to be in balance. And people don't appreciate that. They don't really understand that you just can't have an endless, you know, propagation of any particular species or another, you know, equilibrium will always be found. If you take away too many wolves, there'll be an overpopulation of deer, and then the deer will uh, will graze all the grass away, and then it's going to destroy the soil because there's no more ground covered, and then that's going to wreck things for the insect life, you know, as in all these things are intricately connected. And so for there to be life, there has to be death in one way or another. Because these systems feed into each other. I've but always said that meat that is with respect oh, is important. Yes. Have you yeah. seen that that beautiful story of how uh, this entire ecosystem in Yellowstone National Park was completely restored when they reintroduced wolves? It's unbelievable. Yes. It's all they had to do. Yes. Because people are like, oh, wolves bad. You take them away and you essentially just wreck the balance. And then you realize, oh, so these predators that kill, that hunt, have a role. They have, they have, they, and I think the problem with humans is that they've, we've developed so much that we've removed ourselves from the balance of nature. We've removed ourselves so far 
from the natural order. And we prop this up by creating artificial systems to, to bolster our endless need for growth. So in like, if you were to like roll it back, take it back 5,000 years, you know, you're not going to go out into the wild and just have 10 turkey sandwiches. Impossible. You have to fucking track down those turkeys. We're going to have to understand exactly what it takes to get some meat. So nobody is going to overhunt. And you'll see in the, in the, in the um, populations that did strip the environment excessively, it was swiftly followed by population collapse of the human beings. Now we have factory farms. We have all these like, global systems of trade so that we can extract things from places until those places are dried out. Then we find a new place to extract from. So we feel like everything is limitless, but we just have one earth. So just because you, there's a, still a new place to find and exploit or a new system to exploit every so often, doesn't mean that those are in some infinite loop. And that's going to catch up with us eventually, maybe not this generation, but in many ways, things are catching up with us now, as in the sort of like extreme weather events that we have now because of what we've done to ecosystems and like knocking them out of balance. Because in there's no appreciation. When I used to teach, there was something I used to show my students. And essentially, it was like a video. Some guy made a video making a chicken sandwich. It sounds hilarious, except he didn't go buy the elements of the chicken sandwich. He created them all from scratch, which means for the bread, he grew his own wheat. He had to get his own... Uh, uh, like create his own yeast and all of that. Uh, the chickens, he had to raise them. He had to grow his own lettuce. He had to grow his own tomatoes. And then when you put all those processes together, I think it took him about eight to 10 months to make the chicken sandwich. So that's what it takes. But we <laughs> buy a chicken sandwich in just like five minutes and we don't think about how much labor, how much time, how many resources actually go in to creating something as simple as a chicken sandwich. And so we feel like chicken sandwiches are infinite and they're actually not. This is something that really concerns me. And it is that there are very few people in the world who have all the power and all the money they get to make the decisions for the rest of us because they have all the power and they have all the money. And what, when I have these conversations with other people, I usually start out by saying, I believe that meat consumption should be exquisite and rare. In yes. the example that you just gave an extreme example, but that's the first thing I say. And then the second thing I say is that human beings are very susceptible to marketing. And we right now, we're in this trend where carbohydrates are bad and protein is good. And, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, it was the opposite. And it's protein, protein, protein. We need far, far, far less protein than people think that we need. And mm -hmm. and, and the whole conversation, and this happens to me in so many different facets or scenarios in my life, revolve mm -hmm. around the hamburger. Mm-hmm. 
couple of weeks ago, I was in a sort of a brainstorming work session on how to make the food court for um, this giant festival in, in Amsterdam that only happens once every five years. Mm-hmm. It was the, the, it was like, how do we make it affordable? How do we make it accessible? And how do we make it inclusive? And by inclusive, they meant like affordable, like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I was like, the first thing I said was like, guys, you have to choose your audience because you you can't achieve all three of those. You're going to end up with nothing. And every the whole entire conversation was around hamburger, hamburgers and fake hamburgers. And I was like, okay, guys, but the fake hamburgers um, are, it's, it's, you know, ultra processed food and it comes with a, a big packaging burden and it's not local. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't understand why all we're doing is talking about hamburgers, whether they're made from cows or whether they're made from soy protein. Let's talk about another food type. If we, if we take that word hamburger out and replace it with pizza, then it's Mm -hmm. a much, much easier conversation to have. Mm -hmm. And Bill Gates is an example. Mm -hmm. The billionaire that he is, it's clear that he doesn't have a very sophisticated palate because he's even said like my favorite food is just like a hamburger and fries. So because mm-hmm. he has endless resources, he's putting all of those resources into, I don't know, changing the feed that cows eat so that they produce less methane. And mm-hmm. I like this is completely the wrong direction that this conversation is headed in. But it doesn't it we don't get a say in it because Bill Gates has the endless resources. He gets to make the decisions for the rest of us. Yeah, it's not it's just yeah. about all, the whole entire problem is fixed if we just reduce our consumption of animal protein end of story. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And another thing that I that I'm trying to bring awareness um to the very few people know about is um how do you say that like um f- like uh fish fish farming so like the caged mm-hmm. fish farms. Now, mm-hmm. I think that a- enough people know that the caged fish farms that you know are in Norway for example, that fish is very low quality. Um the mm-hmm. fish are are suffering from sea lice that's a parasite that attaches themselves to the fish and and causes Mm -hmm. these awful wounds Mm -hmm. but something that a lot of people don't think about that the fish that we eat what are those fish eating and what those fish are eating in those factories are fish meal where does Mm -hmm. the fish meal come from well a lot of it comes from the west coast of africa from these disgusting Mm -hmm. fish meal factories that are mm-hmm. ruining the local economy, decimating and polluting the environment, um, turning the coasts into aquatic deserts from overfishing, and they scoop up all of this fish that nobody wants to eat. They dry it, they mm-hmm. grind it into, into fish meal, and then it is it's sent up to those salmon in Norway, and that's mm-hmm. what they're eating. It is a horrible, horrible, exploitative, terrible human rights, environmental violation a mm-hmm. colonialist, horrible situation, left, right, and center, and nobody knows about it. So I, I, it's the same thing. I'm now I'm getting all hot about this, but it's you know the <laughs> Chinese in Africa is a very, very uncomfortable, exploitative relationship. So the it's Chinese terrible. are going; they're going yeah. into the Congo. I mean, Nuria, you probably already know this. Mm-hmm. The Chinese owned half of the 16 cobalt mines in Africa, half of them. So that, you know, that the cobalt is used for like, you know, uh, um, electric vehicle batteries. I'm like, people wake up, wake up. It's happening all over again, you know, uh, underneath your noses. And I'm speaking to like Western society, but, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. But 
But you see, I think this is this is the same problem as as it is with 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 meat consumption or anything else. It's this. I am so removed from the problem area. All I see is the benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, so like like I tell and I and I think also because let's face it, there's also a kind of like moral exhaustion that can happen from being worried about so many problems. Because let's face it, the planet Earth, human beings, nature, everything that that's going on right now at this point in time is a fucking shit show. And it's a shit show in so many different places for different reasons. The amount of suffering that's happening on the planet right now, you know, how many wars can we name just now? How many genocides can we name? As in, we live in an age where it's possible to name more than one genocide going on at the same time. And it's mm. disgusting. But I also understand that people are like, honestly, I can't wake up in the morning and start thinking about all the problems in other places because honestly, the day is going to pass and there'll still be more problems to add on. So I think that's what happens then, quite naturally, is you become very tunnel visioned. You're like, okay, this is the problem I'll worry about. And I can't be concerned about these other things. Look at me, I'm doing this one good thing. And you see it in sustainability. It's like people can be super obsessed with, let's say, reducing their water footprint, but they don't think about single-use plastics. They don't think about fair wages. They're just concerned about this one aspect of sustainability because that's all they have the emotional, mental bandwidth to to, to carry, you know. So when you're looking at like problems of extractivism, like what's going on in Congo, like I, I the other day somebody said this that Congo is the richest, poorest planet, the richest, poorest country on the planet, you know. And it's true. Mm. The amount of natural resources. In the Congo, you know, and all of us have a, a cell phone that has, you know, precious metals from uh, and rare metals from Congo, all of us, you know. And when you think about the child, probably some five year old that was forced to crawl into some sand dug mine shaft, it is horrifying. It is horrifying. And these things are fueled by governments that have like very specific industrial targets uh, by large corporations that want to keep that bottom line as in like by the time this turns into an iphone you know for for some hipster to buy wherever that hipster may be because that hipster may be in nairobi they may be in london they may be in new york they may be in delhi you know the price tag that's put on it how much of that is trickling to the five-year-old kid that's crawling through the literal mud to power it. But I think human beings, we just don't have the bandwidth to take that on, take on uh, what's going on in, 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 in Gaza, to take on what's going on with the Uyghurs, to take on what's going on with the Aboriginal population in, 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 in Australia, to take on what's going on in Syria. And as in like some point you're just like, okay, I'm just gonna focus on this one problem because I can't handle it. And it's it's unfortunate. I understand it, but it's very unfortunate. Um this this makes me think about the discussion over whether or not in the history of humanity 
today is the best time ever in the history of humanity to be alive. Now, I understand the case there in terms of the progress that we've made uh, generally, holistically, with human rights, women's rights, animal welfare, you know, outlawing torture, you know, democracies, um, that sort of thing, you know, eradication or prevention or curing of disease, you know, ubiquitous education and literacy, sure. Mm -hmm. But when you think about, and I want to run the numbers on this, Mm -hmm. gross population of humans in the world, say 300 years ago, versus the net number of people suffering today, in my opinion, that argument falls away because there's so many more people on the earth now. And I was recently kind of having this internal conversation because I'm reading the new book by Elliot West, who's this really Mm -hmm. lovely uh, historian and author of the American West. And he was talking recently on, I think it was a Joe Rogan podcast Mm -hmm. about how the American Buffalo was really running into trouble in with its numbers when native american people indigenous people indians whatever you know uh label you would like to uh assign to first generation americans he called it the herbivore predator and the herbivore predator is when man got on horseback and was able to travel at great distances in great speed onto the grasslands of the bison, which also happened to be the same grasslands as the horses, and that they were able, therefore, on horseback to kill many, many more bison than they would on foot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So human (laughs) beings have always used whatever technology was available to them, uh, you know, to to, um, take advantage of of the, the bounty that laid before them. So he was saying it's sort of this romantic myth that all indigenous indigenous people of of America like lived in perfect harmony with the earth and never took more than they needed. He's like, that's that's kind of a fallacy. Um, and so I think it changes the discussion about overpopulation. I'm like, if we admit and accept our inherent, um, I guess you could call it greed, but just our, it's very, very hard when it, let me just say it this way. Animals don't have to worry about the discipline of not taking too much because we're capable of taking too much because of our great big giant brains. This Mm -hmm. is a discipline that human Mm -hmm. beings have to impose on itself and we haven't been able to do it yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe if we are never able to do it, uh, but we have the aspiration to live in balance and how do we move forward with that? Um, I think it's definitely possible. I think it's going to require more female leadership. I think oh, that we are sure. on the precipice of of making that transition. I would love to see as much of it uh, in my lifetime as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, we, you know, we'll see. So, oh. but, <laughs> but, you know, as in, I think. I... There's quite some. Do I still have you, Nuria? Yes, you do. I okay. don't know. It just dropped for a second. Yeah. Okay. So what I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say that it's it's true. There is quite some romanticization of indeed indigenous cultures, uh, but also I think a romanticization of of history 
in general, like the, the history of the human race, I think in, as you say, in every situation where there's an opportunity for us to exploit our environment, we do. The And you're right, our big brains allow us sometimes to like jump over things. As in, you know, Thomas Malthus was around saying, oh my God, you know, the consumption of people, you know, it, it's it's going beyond the, the capacity of um, of our systems to support us. And then we're like, <laughs> hold my cup, Thomas. We're about to do some really technological shit that's going to allow us to jump over your suppositions there, you know. And now Thomas Malthus looks like an idiot who didn't know what he was talking about because he didn't anticipate technologies ability to create higher yielding crops uh to kind of like jumpstart the like the agricultural revolution that made it that now actually we're wasting wasting so much food it blows my mind hunger should not be a thing hunger should not be a thing in the 21st century we have enough food problem is not the food the problem is the distribution of the food you know correct yeah but, but human beings we just have this this, this ability and it, it it's like really crazy because in nature like animals have this too they have they have also problems controlling themselves but what happens is because of ecosystem equilibrium if you misbehave and you eat way too much the ecosystem is going to be like hmm, then there's none of me left and you're going to starve to death and then when there are very few of you there's going to be enough food for the few of you and it will come back to equilibrium you know but human beings are like hold that thought i'm going to do this thing that allows us to leapfrog this problem and and part sometimes that thing is technology sometimes that thing is like hey there is a place that i haven't exploited yet and because we have the ability to travel the ability to like use whether it's planes or horses or whatever it is to like let us skip over these limits that nature is putting but there is indeed a final limit somewhere I don't know where it is because I don't know what we'll be able to exploit next and what technology will allow us to do because who knows, maybe in a few years, Mars is going to be turned into a farming colony or something like that. I have no idea because all the things that we have now, if we were to jump even just a hundred years into the past and like go to our great grandparents and say, hey, I'm talking to a piece of metal and plastic to somebody who is approximately 200 kilometers away from me. They would be like, Satan, this is Satan, for sure. <laughs> You're talking to a demon, <laughs> you know. But so, no, you can totally do it. There's this invisible thing called Wi-Fi that touches on our plastic metal boxes that allows us to speak to people at great distances. It would sound like sheer insanity. So what is there what's going to be there 50 years from now or 100 years from now that to us now sounds like not going to happen i don't know but that we're living in the best time i don't know i think charles dickens was absolutely right in his opening of a tale of two cities it was the best of times it was the worst of times it was what does it go that it was the age of wisdom it was the age of foolishness <laughs> And I think that's something that just, it's always the best time. And it's also always the worst time simultaneously. Yeah. And I don't think that that's ever going to change. I no. always, I wonder, 
first of all, I wonder if, if, if human intelligence is in its own way, some sort of macro pandemic. And when we talk about making the world a better place, making things easier, faster, eradicating disease, mm -hmm. the question I ask is, but to what end? What's the goal that human beings and every single living thing on the planet never experiences hardship or challenges or promises? What, what are we headed toward? Nobody ha can agree on it. I don't think anybody has any ideas exactly what that means. I mean, you know, I I run a sustainability company because of I, I know what my own intrinsic motivations are, but they're different than somebody else who might be doing the exact same thing I'm doing. Yes. And and we're never going to get there. You know, no. Dickens was right. We're never going to get there. And I think really the only reason we do it is is because we can. And yes. going back to that theme of being nervous about there are too few people now who are all exactly like each other making the decisions for the rest of us. They're all, you know, for the most part, men, most of them American men or men who live in America um, with very myopic views. Uh, that are just doing this because it's their own personal interest, rather whether it's you know colonizing Mars or or making you know cows that are going to be turned into hamburger that you know don't produce so much methane. The rest of us yes. don't have a say, and then now the same thing is happening with AI. Everybody's mm -hmm. talking about AI, AI, AI. Why is AI even a thing that we're pursuing? Because a few people with all the power decided this was their personal interest, and so now the rest of us have to be interested in it. This is the way it oh, goes. Yes. And in a way, it's always been the same, like mm -hmm. like in history. Power is always in the hands of the few because this is this, you know, we have we have a tendency as a species to organize ourselves into, you know, pyramid style hierarchies where there's like very few at the top and they oppress everyone. Whether you're looking at the emperors of 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 of, of the Mayan Empire or the Romans or Greeks, it's only societies are structured like that. And as you say, it's typically a man at the top. There have been very few like cultures historically that had uh, women at the top, you know, or where women even had the opportunity to ascend to power, you know, like like in Egypt, that was possible. Women could be pharaohs, you know, uh, but that's just not a thing usually. And 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 there are so many issues that come into play with that and what that usually means for the the path of progress that we're going to chart because first of all you're looking at this concentration of power and more importantly the concentration of wealth because those two things always go hand in hand you know in, in these very wealthy very powerful people they're just there you know and then you have to consider human beings don't live forever they've got a limited time span even with the greatest health care whatever you've got you know 80 odd years you know if it's is on average if you're in a western country you know could be more could be less maybe you're japanese and you live to 110 i don't know but at the end of the day your grasp on what you can do with your power and money is limited to that time frame and i think it leads to a lot of I think terrible decision making because you don't need to be concerned about what the planet looks like a hundred years from now. 
And you know what is the most messed up thing? Even if technology was invented to increase our lifespans to 400 years or a thousand years or forever, if you could download our digital consciousness to be loaded into fresh bodies, I know there's sci-fi like that, you know, I think that would fix the problem either. It might even make it worse because suddenly you have this still same tiny group of people with power and wealth who make decisions that primarily benefit a very tiny sphere, their sphere of existence. And whether that sphere is limited by time or whether it's a spatial sphere, as in this is my neighborhood, this is my home, this is my my group of other powerful friends, you know, and everybody else who tends to exist outside that sphere is merely fuel to further their ambitions. And their ambitions don't ever extend beyond themselves. And if they do, because of course, very powerful people are also prone to doing philanthropic this and that. And, you know, it's great, you know, sometimes there are breakthroughs that it's a new vaccine or what. And, and yeah, you, you have to, on one hand, you're appreciated, but I don't think we should look at those things and give them like, okay, you have a pass because you did that. Because that's, I, I heard somebody say it recently and it was very well said that for somebody to be having a great deal, or to be doing so damn amazing, there's someone somewhere else in the chain towards that person doing the best, getting the most, who is getting the least. You cannot become a billionaire without exploiting billion people, in my opinion. <laughs> somewhere in the chain, something is broken for one human being to amass so much wealth and so much power and so much influence. But unfortunately, all of that power and influence and wealth mostly feeds into their tiny ecosystem. And so even though all these people like feed into that, they don't get anything back out of it. They really don't. Or if you do, it's like, oh, and now your child won't have polio, which is great. But it's like, but they're still going to work in a factory until they die. <laughs> yeah. without polio but without polio so thank me <laughs> you know so it's like i don't know if there's a solution for it because i feel like humans naturally self-organize into these like terrible things and i think part of the reason is that and i saw somebody say this about like the american political system is that people are sorry my my dog also has an opinion about this family <laughs> um people always think about themselves as they are temporarily like embarrassed millionaires rather than just part of the the general poor, you know? So it's like, no, I don't want to change rules so that people at the top have to pay their fair share or have to give back. Because what about when I'm on the top? I don't want to have to do that. You're like, yeah, but you're never going to be at the top. You're always going to be at the bottom. So you should be working really hard to make things really good for everyone instead of thinking, no, 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 one day when I'm a millionaire, I don't want to pay taxes, so I'm going to keep supporting tax cuts for like massively wealthy people. It's like such a weird way of thinking, but human beings just do this, and I don't know why. I wonder if there's some sort of perverse comfort that can be derived from accepting that this is the true essential nature of human beings, and that if it's never going to change, instead of us working to try and figure out how to change it, if we accept that it's never going to change, 
where do we go from there? Is that a learned hopelessness or if it's, or if it's like, okay, there's, there's calm that can be derived from acceptance and then you can move forward rather than just like futilely spinning our wheels, you know, raging against the man when the man is always going to be there. Um, I, I was thinking like, you get these like tiny little tastes of it when the status quo was being threatened. And I'll give you a really simple example. A couple of days ago, I put a post on LinkedIn about um, this little moment, this tiny little moment that I observed at an all women's entrepreneurial um, meeting. It was like oh, showcasing I saw that it. Post. I saw Did it. you about the sweater? About the sweater, yeah. you know, that she so, just picked it up. Yeah, it was great. So the story goes that I just, I noticed that the woman behind me, her mm -hmm. sweater had fallen off the back of her chair and the woman behind her picked up the sweater and just put it back on the chair when I was expecting her to like tap the lady on the shoulder and say, oh, your sweater's on the floor, floor you dropped your shoulder. And I saw that as a metaphor of how in this, in this tiny little simple way that women, you know, really support women just by doing these things for each other. And 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 I was it was um, it felt very uncomfortable to me how many men. Uh, well, there was one man who's a very, very sweet guy that I've known for a long time that said, hey, you know, it's not just women that do that. Men would pick up the sweater and put it back there, too. And then all these other men were like liking his response, but no women were liking his response. And I felt very um, I, not very, but I felt angry about that. I, I felt threatened about that. I felt disappointed that he couldn't see the point and that all the other men who were lovely men in my community were siding with him and not with me. And then I had to say to him, you'll never understand or witness because you're a man, what it's like when men aren't in the room. It's, it's different. And we women, we need this. Like, please let us have it. That's all I'm saying. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like there's a lot of energy and resentment and anger and being threatened coming from perfectly reasonable, gentle, lovely men, <laughs> if you exclude them. And uh, I was like, all right, guys, like, this is this was in the tiniest way opened up quite a large wave of um, what I what I perceived as like negative energy uh, mm -hmm. coming my way. And um, there's something else in terms of that power dynamic that I wanted to get your opinion on mm -hmm. going back to animals for a second. And that's poachers and factory farmers. Mm -hmm. So when I think about owners of factory farmers, I'm like, what did you have to do? If you weren't a born psychopath to be comfortable with confining and torturing animals for, you know, just increasing your margins when those animals are slaughtered versus a poacher who's maybe killing gorillas and rhinos and elephants, you know, to make ashtrays out of gorilla hands or using tusks for ivory or, you know, rhino horns, rhino horns for uh, um, placebo, you know. Um, yeah, erectile dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> does that, does that, do, 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 do poachers, are poachers poaching out of a sense of desperation because there's no other economic opportunity for them? Are there, is that, does that also come from like, you know, a, a pathological place of greed. I, I have a feeling you probably have some insights into this. And if you don't, that's fine. But I wanted to ask. And if you did, please share them. Uh, I actually do. Because, of course, 
poaching is like a massive, massive issue uh, in Africa, in any African country that has like a lot of wildlife. Um, Kenya has a big five. Uh, I know it's a big issue in the, in Southern Africa as well. And I think you have two kinds of poachers. They are poachers who get into it out of desperation. And trust me, they are not the ringleaders. These are people who have been told, well, your 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 family's like damn poor. You're gonna get a hundred bucks if you help me on this. But on this, and I've seen this like in South Africa in particular, their poaching is some corporate level insanity. They are coming in on helicopters. They've got assault weapons, you know, like high grade military. That is not some broke, desperate person who has limited economic opportunities. This is like organized. It's like the mafia. So those are people who are making proper money out of poaching as an industry. So you're going to have those people. And again, organized into a pyramid. You know, it's going to be a bunch of like really desperate people who are going to be brought in because you're like, yeah, we need the manpower. You know, you're taking down an elephant isn't a joke taking down a small house basically yeah mm. um same for a rhino as in some of these animals are like really dangerous really heavy you know so you need to go in and get out pronto because uh of course they are corrupt officials that uh, that always like lubricate these shady processes because they're getting some kickback from it but i know in a lot of places uh, poaching is considered a huge to kill crime because animals are very valuable in, in Africa because of tourism, because of, of, of like the natural heritage of a country. So often, like as a game warden, you're told if you see a poacher, just shoot them in the head. This is a crime against the entire country to kill an elephant, to kill a rhino. These are some endangered species, you know, our entire country's heritage is built into nature being robust. So somebody coming to mess with that, that's like a crime against the state. It's like being a traitor, you know? But of course, this, like, like I say, the, the poor people who might be pulled into poaching, um, yeah, some of them it's coming from a place of desperation because somebody says, hey, I'm going to give you $100, $200, you know, to do this, to do that, you know, and that's more money than they've probably seen in, in a year. And they're like, okay, I'll do it. It's worth the risk. But you need to think about what kind of structures are supporting the helicopter and the assault weapons and the ability to like fly into a game park in the middle of the dark and like you know do like some takedown assassination of a of a, of a fucking rhino you know so there are people driven indeed by greed a lot of these people are taking these horns that they that, that they they fought you know and in very brutal ways I'll tell you they do not necessarily kill the animal before harvesting because that might take time. Because these are large animals, they don't just die because you you stop them once, you know. Mm. So if you take down an elf and take down a rhino, you know you're on a clock because game wardens got alerted by your chopper flying overhead, and so they're coming to literally end your life. You're like, wait, I'm sorry, did it disconnect again? 
No, actually, I sound uh, clearer now. So whatever you've done, I think maybe keep doing it. Oh, yeah, there. Um, so as in when you have that pressure, um, often what they do is that they are is that this forces them to be very brutal. It forces them to, of course, not force because perhaps the best option is to just not be a damn poacher in the first place, you know. But they're doing this because there's a lot of money and a lot of this money is coming out of Asia because let's face it, that's often the end market uh, of a lot of these goods. Ivory is illegal um, all over Africa, like strongly. So it is considered disgusting and dirty. Uh, when I was um, a child, I remember like when the first really strong anti-poaching laws were put into place, um, all of the ivory that had been seized uh, from poachers in Kenya, uh, the president at the time, um, he put it all together in a massive pile and he burnt it. And he said, essentially the message was, we would rather see our ivory in ashes than fueling the poaching industry. You may have killed these elephants, but you're not going to profit off of them. Not mm. a single bit, you know. So poaching is something that's considered very disgusting eh, in Africa. But the money leads. Huh? Greed is a very strong imperative. There's so much money to be made from it, like I said, particularly in Asian markets where you can still get, I don't know, rhino horn pills or ivory this for good luck in, in this or that. But in Africa, this is seen as something extremely repulsive and, like, like I said, almost punishable by death. Yeah, mm. I have to say, I, I, I love that. That's the pervasive attitude. Um, I just, I just hope that. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes you hear these reports of like, oh, poaching has been reduced, but then there was a spike. I mean, how do you? How is it? What's the trend these days with with poaching in Africa? Do you think it's headed in the right direction? I, you know, like, like I said, when I was young and there was the whole like um, ivory burning thing and what, I really feel like after that, there was probably like a, a reduction, you know, because also there was this like massive public awareness about how wrong it was and how much we should value our natural capital because it's unique and it's special um, in this world and, and you need to preserve things that, a, first of all, bring a lot of money to the economy. You know, tourists don't come to go look at an empty savanna. They come to look at the big five. They come to look at lions and rhinos and, and elephants and giraffes, you know. So if you don't value those things uh, that your economy relies on, you're going to be, you know, like, like really fucked in the long term. But I feel these days, because there is a greater access, like the poachers, of 1990 or 1987 or 1970 were not coming in with helicopters and like AR-15s. It's the thing of now. So there are certain things like pieces that are moving into place, whether it's in the illegal arms market or in terms of um, uh, how much these goods are worth. Because of course, the more rare something becomes, the more difficult to acquire it, the more valuable it is. But I think could be pushing things in not a great direction. 
Mm. Because I know there's also, and this is not coaching, but it's a hugely controversial topic, which is um, like sport hunting, but for a really high price tag. And I think everybody has seen uh, like the controversy that happened with, I believe, was it Cecil the Lion in South Africa? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where you get like some American sport hunter comes and they pay, I don't know, $50,000, $75,000, whatever it is, to hunt like a large African lion, you know, so they can have that as a trophy. And it, there's a lot of controversy that the government allows this, you know, uh, because the, the argument is uh, you allow few sport hunters to come in for a huge, huge price tag. And then you take all of these hundreds of thousands, maybe millions that you make from a few people coming in to do this under supervision. And you use that to support all the other animals, to protect them from poachers, to put in higher grade security systems, to arm game wardens better to protect the rest of the wildlife. So Cecil dies, but because he dies, all of the rest of the lions get to live in a safer environment because of it. So that's usually the trade-off there. So you're essentially using the hunting down of some to protect the rest. And in that sense, I understand, because poaching has become very high-tech. And that tells me that it's not going in a good direction. Because wherever people will find a gap, some loophole, they are going to dive through it. They're going to enlarge it as much as they can for the sake of profit. So if people, as in, honestly, it really talked to me. If people were going in like, like SEAL teams to take down a rhino. And that tells me there's a lot of impetus to keep doing it. And the rarer it gets, the more valuable it gets, which means people are going to get even more creative. And it's never going to stop. It's really never going to stop. I no, I mean, all, te- all technology ever does. It, the first thing everyone, not everyone, but the first thing mm-hmm. it's usually men do with new technology is figure out how to make porn or access porn with it. <laughs> the second is how do I kill something or someone with it? Um, and yeah, I've heard that argument too. It's like, well, you know, it's it's it just brings in all of this money if they can under supervision, kill this older male, you know, mm-hmm. animal of whatever species. And I'm like, God, mm-hmm. there's so much money in the world. Like money is never the problem. It's gaining no. access to it and distributing it. And is that really, yeah. I mean, we could just like euthanize the animal, you know, or okay, I guess, I mean, mm-hmm. as opposed to like killing it for sports. Yeah. But where's the profit in that? Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, well, is there something else that we can do? Like, you know, some five-star experience or whatever. I don't know. I Maybe at this point in time, it isn't the worst thing. But if we're not seeing benefit from those dollars, then the, obviously the model isn't working. And I do find it interesting, once again, that there is a connection between the story you just told me with poachers and factory farming, that there's no middle class in these stories. You have the very wealthy factory farmers who are hiring mostly undocumented immigrants because these are the jobs that they can get and the only jobs mm-hmm. they can get working in the, you know, the meat processing plants. And there's nothing With in between. Terrible so, safety conditions. Mm-hmm. Terrible. And yeah. they sometimes have children in there. When you're seeing children with industrial 
level like injuries because their hand got caught in a lathe or something mm -hmm. like that. It's like it's shocking. But as you say, there's no middle. And I mm -hmm. and I fear that even beyond factory farming or poaching or any industry that I think there's a rapidly disappearing middle. You know, it's starting to be like you're either really all the way at the top or you're all the way at the bottom. Yeah. And I could tell you that was one of the reasons that I started my own business or that mm -hmm. I felt comfortable starting my own business because I am more, and this is a, a position of privilege. So it's obnoxious that I'm going to say this, but it's true. I'd rather be at the bottom than at the top. Um, I had a house in Seattle that I hung on to forever. Um, it appreciated it. It appreciated. I sold it. My partner and I have been living off the proceeds of it for the last five years, and we are going to zero in terms of our personal savings in order to try mm -hmm. and get this business off the ground. And mm -hmm. I'm more comfortable going to zero than I am having hung on to that money and worry about the money and invest the money and get, you know, really nervous if, you know, the investments, you know, went down month over month for two months rather mm -hmm. than up like that, that mm -hmm. level of stress is more stressful for me than the stress of going, oh my God, we better figure this out because we're about to not have any money. And I mm -hmm. think that that's sort of like this, the spirit of the entrepreneur mm -hmm. is that your, your personal measurement of success or value is it how much money you personally have in the bank? It's how much growth you can create. Hopefully, mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's my attitude anyway mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. for my business, for people that I can employ, for people that I can empower, for, you know, again, like the, the social um, mm -hmm. currency. How many people can I bring into my network in order to help them? These are the things that bring meaning to my life. Um, even though I, I have, I live that. in a houseboat that's like falling apart right now. It, there's some mm -hmm. comfort in that, you know? But, um, you know, and I'm I'm not saying that all, all men are terrible. That's far from true. There are a lot of fantastic men in this world. Absolutely. Uh, but I feel like that kind of mentality is, is quite a feminine mentality, you know, mm. because for whatever reasons, with hormones, genetics, what women always lean towards being nurturing. And it's not all women. They're terrible women, too, straight mm -hmm. up, as in sometimes. And, I, and But partially... I feel like the most terrible of women are women who are trying to be men because they've been taught that all of the, let's say, say soft or feminine qualities are signs of weakness and they're disgusting. So to win in a man's world, you need to project more masculine characteristics. You need to be more competitive. You need to be more aggressive. You need to be more uh, ruthless and brutal. And that kind of like creates almost the worst because it's somebody who understands the, the level of sensitivity that it takes to like really get into people's hearts and minds. But you pair that with the brutality of wanting to be on top. <laughs> and so in a way, women can be like really uh, horrible and dangerous as well. But I feel like, as you said earlier, you know, with a greater amount of like female leadership, and a less denigration of quote unquote feminine qualities, you know, because I think it should be considered a feminine quality to have empathy for people. It should be a human quality 
the fact that it's called feminine almost as a way to denigrate it to say like oh that's the dumb thing to do like a woman you know i fucking hate that i hate when all things that are about kindness and joy and like nurturing and peace are considered deeper qualities and so yeah i agree that's one of the main reasons why i'm starting this podcast nuria to get that to get that conversation up to the forefront um you know i before i started my startup um i worked mm-hmm. in uh the corporate world for 20 years mm-hmm. and i recognized that as well because it happened to be mostly male dominated and the only departments where it was mostly women were either you know pr or marketing or hr and i was almost always um you know the only woman in the room or maybe there were like a few other a few others mm-hmm. and the women that were the most successful were definitely in it for themselves, were not there to bring other women up. And there was just this clickishness also that I bounced out of because I'm like, I just Mm -hmm. don't belong here. I'm not welcome here. Um, I don't know how to play this game. I don't know how to get into the click. I don't, I don't like these women. And I thought that that's just how women were. And I was like, well, I guess I just like the company of men more because like you said, like Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I worked with some really, mostly, most of the men that I've either dated or mm-hmm. my family or that I've worked with are lovely, lovely, lovely human beings. Of course they mm-hmm. are. And so uh, once I got into this world of female entrepreneurship, female leadership, I found my women. I found my tribe uh, of of you know, smart, open, supportive, funny, interesting, amazing women. That's why I started this podcast because I want to get these conversations that you and I would have mm-hmm. privately like out mm-hmm. into the world. Mm-hmm. And I grieve for the decades that I lost not being a part of this because I I feel so comfortable and so energized in this world. And the conversations, like you said now, mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the female entrepreneurship, we're already immediately being shoved into this eye rolling bias of like, oh, let me mm-hmm. guess, you're you're a female entrepreneur. Let let's see, I bet your your company is in sustainability. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. don't say it that way. Like you said, don't denigrate it. Like go to where mm-hmm. women are already leading the way with these feminine attributes that should be celebrated mm-hmm. and amplified rather than. Mm, dismissed or somehow like perceived in a patronizing way. Stop mm-hmm. asking women that the only way we're going to be rewarded either with, you know, uh, investment or acknowledgement or support is if we go into STEM, which yes, mm-hmm. does have a deficit of women, of course, that needs to be there. Mm-hmm. But you're asking us once again to fill in a deficit of a male dominated and male um, originated industry. It doesn't just mm-hmm. have to be all or nothing to come up with that deficit. Like, look where women are already leading the way. This is a conversation I have a lot in investment mm-hmm. circles where they're like, oh, mm-hmm. well, you're not deep tech or you're not doing AI or mm-hmm. so you're, not, you're not a software engineer, so you don't fall into our vertical. Mm-hmm. It's really, really hard. Like my opportunities for investment are so narrow because of this, mm-hmm. even with female, female uh, venture capital that only invest in women. Most of those VCs only invest in women who are leaders in tech. <sighs> yeah so you know it's frustrating mm-hmm. and you know it's a pity because as you say like as soon as you you started moving in female entrepreneurship circle you realize how much more community there is and mm-hmm. i think the reason for that is because women when they are leading themselves and they get to be the ones who set the agenda don't come in with the mentality that there's only space 
for just me. But if you move into a traditional corporate hierarchy or even an academic hierarchy, you will immediately start noticing some things. There is the one woman who is the top professor, you know, there is the one uh, black person or the one Asian, because it's like you're told, you know what, we need to diversify, but there's space for one of you. So for you to make it to the top, you need to cut down everybody else like you because they're your direct competition. Otherwise, you're not making it here, you know? And it leads to this like great level of nastiness where instead of supporting each other and like pulling each other up and like being like, you know, you go for it, you know, I'm going to be here for you. It's going to be like, if she's a few steps in front of me, she's going to fill that one singular spot that's made for people like me and then I will never have a chance. So when you yeah. remove that kind of like traditional hierarchy or that like ridiculous idea that there's only space for one of any particular kind at the top, because it seems to be that there's infinite space for men at the top. Mm-hmm. There's infinite space for white men at the top, you know? So, and there's infinite space from people who are from privileged backgrounds at the top. And often these three things intersect with each other, you know. But if we take that mentality away, you know, and you end up like in in entrepreneurship, you know, and female entrepreneurship, but you're not fighting each other for the top. The, the, the top is infinite, you know. Yeah. We can all be at the top. We can all lift each other up. And I think that's why you find much more perhaps of an open mindset and a progressive mindset among female entrepreneurs than perhaps women in traditional corporate structures. Yeah, I, I, I'm bringing up Joe Rogan again, and I really don't mean to, but he's had this conversation <laughs> within the context of comedians that, mm-hmm. you know, the comed- the best types of comedians and the happiest comedians are the ones that love the hang, that love to hang out with other comedians. And they make each other funnier and they challenge each other. But there are those few comedians that are just in it for themselves. And he said they they tend to get really successful, but then they flame out because they don't have the support network because they've alienated it. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a it's Mm -hmm. a choice. And those women who were the first ones who felt like they had to do that to get Mm -hmm. where they wanted to go, like, I guess more power to you. But this Mm -hmm. is something I've had to decide as an entrepreneur, as a female entrepreneur, I mm-hmm. I definitely think that I have been held back because I face biases. Mm-hmm. Uh and you know, our community, you know, I hear that I listen to a lot of other podcasts and I, I'm just another reason why I wanted to start this one is I'm so tired mm-hmm. of listening to these conversations of men. Mm-hmm inviting mm-hmm. their male friends onto the podcast and the male friends are like, they're all thanking each other or, you know, <laughs> expressing gratitude for the big break that they got from somebody else. And it's always these men supporting men. So I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, we need to do the same thing. Women need to build our own culture on our own terms in our own way. And if people like you and me, Nuri, are sort of like in the first generation of that, we probably won't get to experience the benefit of being brought up by other women because the women ahead of us were the ones that are sort of in it to them for themselves. So yeah. we're on this continuum or this spectrum. But I had to make a decision with my company. I'm like, okay, I have two men on my leadership team. They're both exactly the profile you would want in that pitching room. They're both white. Mm -hmm. They're both middle, you know, in their late 40s, early 50s. They both Mm -hmm. come from the tech world. Uh, They have like very sort of comfortable profiles. 
I could put them forward and then we would probably get our investment much faster, much easier. Mm -hmm. Do I do that for the sake of my company because of the goals that I want to achieve for my company or is my company, am I at risk of putting my company as sort of a martyr for the movement of female entrepreneurs, if if I'm like, nope, I'm going to be the face of Ozarka forever. And if it takes us twice, three times, four times as long to get where we need to be, so be it. And I always have to check with my gut to say which which path feels more comfortable. And I decided that the path that feels more comfortable is the martyr path. This is my company. Mm-hmm. This is my fight. Yes, it's Ozarka, but maybe Ozarka is bigger than just the company that it is, you know, and the goal of, you know, getting reusable food packaging into the world. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something bigger than bigger there. And, and, and that brings me more joy. It's like, no, I, I, Ozarka represents me as a female entrepreneur as well. And that's the path that I'm taking. Mm -hmm. And so that feels better to me, more energizing to me than like, oh, let's just go for the money by any means necessary. Put the boys up in front. You know, I did think about that for a really long time, but I just couldn't, I couldn't go in that direction. It just didn't feel like the right direction to go in. Um, It's because you want to have like a broader, like cultural fit in what it means to, to, to run a company, you know, mm -hmm. and that, that includes taking risk, you know, but I think that's something that's, um, kind of like integral to the entrepreneurial mindset you know if you're not prepared to to take some risks uh to to have blowback you know to have some failures and to bounce back from them you're you're probably not cut out for entrepreneurship and that's fine exactly like like the, the women who like cut other women down um you know i believe they should have personal responsibility everybody should take personal responsibility for the choices they make but i also understand why they do it i understand the kind of environment you 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 you've been bred in that would make you see i need to survive and i do not blame people who need to survive because mm. uh, i need to survive mindset will make people do the wildest things whether it's to be a poacher or to take down people who look like you in order to align yourself with people who definitely do not have your interests at heart, because this goes like full circle to, to what we were talking about in the beginning, you know, uh, in terms of politics, you know, because here we are uh, voting and like putting in power people who clearly do not have the same interests as us as a populist, and they just pander our lowest lowest instincts you know our instincts to hate and to other and it's the same thing essentially with this you know you're told you know i will give you a pass if you fuck over everybody who is next to you and then you get a pass and you're like okay sure i'll vote for you you know i will keep you in power i will align myself with your leadership whether that's corporate leadership or like municipal leadership or just leadership in like on a global stage, you know, it's always about othering and putting people down in order to reach this pinnacle because again, human beings love organizing themselves into pyramids. It's not a, a surprise that pyramid schemes exist up to now, even though we all know what they are, you know, as in, yeah, because it's like, oh, somehow it's intuitive and you're like, I'm going to be the exception that rises to the top of the pyramid. That mentality 
instead of thinking, you know, to hell with this. Let me just make things good for everybody at this level. Because you know what they say, the people who desire to to like be in power and to be in charge of everybody else are often the people who should least be in power, you know? And the people who are like, you know what? I just want to make a good world. I don't need to be at the front of the line. I don't need to be the one with the crown. Those are often the people who are best to take leadership positions because they're not in it for themselves. They're in it for everybody else, but they will never rise to power. They will never be CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. They will never be the presidents of world powers because you need a certain level of narcissism and psychopathy to be like, I'm better than everybody else, to hell with everybody else. I'm going to squash who I need to squash to reach the top of this pyramid. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I was just I was just reflecting as I was listening to you. If I sold out, if I sold out my values, I sold out my authentic self and said, we're going to put the boys in front and get the money. I was I was as soon as I said that I realized early in my career, I I was that woman that was in it for myself, narcissistic, because I do have some narcissistic psychopathic tendencies, which I think all or many entrepreneurs kind of have, or maybe even need to have. I say you um, need some delusion to be a little de- absolutely delusion. <laughs> I've got that in spades, like no question. Um, and it got me so far, mm-hmm. but it it was it was lonely. And when and I was thinking if if I continued on that path, or if I had made the choice to sell at my company, the the thing is we're, we're talking about those women who act like men or those women who are in it for themselves. This is the only thing that we talk about when we think of them. We don't talk about their achievements. We don't talk about the fact that they're directors or vice presidents. We only talk about how they got there. And that is, they're not doing themselves, they're doing themselves a disservice, I think. Um, Fine, maybe they're totally comfortable with that, but that's all we're talking about when we talk about them. Um, And I was just having, uh, you'll you'll hear this on a previous podcast, I was talking to um, another female entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. her name is Katie Jeminder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's that theme of what you said about like fighting, surviving, resisting, um, being resilient. And she's like, you know, there's unicorns mm-hmm. and there's zebras. Do you know the term ze- zebra in this context, which no. is like a unicorn, but it's it's like a unicorn, but it's more <laughs> zebras are more impact oriented. So they, <laughs> you know, maybe they're up and to the right doesn't go, you know, the angle mm-hmm. isn't quite as sharp, but they're still ambitious, but they're impact mm-hmm. oriented. She's mm-hmm. like, I like to think of myself not as a unicorn or as a zebra. She's like, I'm a cockroach. You cannot kill me. And the harder you try and kill me, the more I'm going to proliferate. I'm like, oh, yes, Katie, I'm a cockroach, too. So we're going to start a third category here of mm-hmm. um, cockroaches where we can survive just about anything. So mm-hmm. I, I, I wear that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that badge with pride but hey we haven't talked yet at all about uh humby so um talk about the company talk about your role in it uh tell me the story what do you do well, every day ah uh, what i do every day is realize oh my god why am i an entrepreneur that's my main task <laughs> questioning myself let's but... let's color that in a little bit what's 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 your job and who do you do it for well, Humby, super small startup, you know, really in, in the same space as you, you know, we're looking at sustainability, particularly in food services. Um, 
And so the the mission of the company, uh, like I mentioned his name earlier, Ferenc uh, Feinstra, he's the one who originally had the idea for the company when he ordered takeout. And I think he, he had like a party or something and he was like next day, super hungover. He wanted to order some takeout. And when it arrived, he was like, you know, this is like really terrible. This is like so much plastic, so much uh, you know, like waste just from, you know, having a takeout with your friends. And he thought, like, why aren't there like options to opt into getting like takeout, but more sustainably, like supporting businesses that work in a more sustainable way, um, that have that as part of their ethos, so that if you do order takeout, it comes in something that you can recycle or that you can opt out of uh getting like these single-use cutlery and that you know that the rider who brought it to you has fair wages and that you know the restaurant you know is, is paying fair fair wages as well and so like a more sustainable like a more holistic sustainable vision of of, of the food services industry um, and so that was his original idea for Humby and so he, he got started with that and uh, shortly after he realized, um, well, I, I should probably get somebody who's a little bit more of an expert on sustainability than me because he has a background in entrepreneurship. That's what he studied uh, in, in Rotterdam. And um, so he like put it out there. He was looking for like a chief sustainability officer who could come in and actually tell him exactly what the fuck any of this sustainability stuff means. And at that point, like I said, I was done with my PhD. Uh, I, I already was interested in entrepreneurship, and I was like, okay, that sounds like, um, like you know, something cool, something I'd like to do. My my expertise is in food systems, in in sustainability issues. So, like, let me give it a shot. And I spoke to friends, and we got along really great. I'd really like for you to meet him actually, and. Um, yeah, so we, we got started on that, especially because he has the ambition to be um, a B Corp, you know, and kind of like um, a leader in sustainability in that sense, you know, although uh, I don't even want to get into the specificities of B Corp. Uh, oh, because... the paperwork takes a year. I mean, the, you the have paperwork... to hire somebody to do it. Yeah. Yes, you know, and that's effectively me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of thing, but I didn't even find the process of it hard, you know, for yeah. me, I just have, um, like, I was just deeply, deeply disappointed and almost slightly ashamed that Nespresso got B Corp certification because mm -hmm. then I was like, what are we even doing? What are we even doing? You know, but it's like, okay, you know, it feels a little bit slimy to me, you know, but um I realized that uh, every company has goals, including B Corp itself, you know, and sometimes those are, they're not always going to be exactly the same. But one of the things, uh, first things I learned about sustainability is that sustainability is a lot of things, but one of the things it is at the, the most is it's a tool to bring people to the table to discuss how to make things better. Because if you're looking for everybody agreeing on the same definition or having the same exact goals or having the exact same pathway, um, you're going to be looking forever. What you should be able to all agree on, though, is that we need to do better. 
we need to be better and we need to prioritize environmental issues. We need to prioritize societal issues far above profits, you know? So for me, that that is my entry point uh, to it. And that's Humby's entry point to it as well, you know? And so we do several things uh, at Humby, uh, one of which is um, uh, helping restaurants become more sustainable. So we have, for example, a sustainability checklist and a restaurant can fill it out and they can see their pain points and their strengths and their weaknesses when it comes to how sustainably they run their business. And of course, from that, we can help them by connecting them uh, to, to the right partners to improve different aspects of their business in terms of sustainability. And um, we also, we're, in the, we're developing uh, software uh, that also does uh, stuff like reservations and bookings uh, because these tend to be quite expensive for restaurants, particularly on the uh, uh, ordering side. Um, and uh, some of the giants of industry in, in that domain honestly rob restaurants blind. And we need to remember that most restaurants, they're not massive multinational conglomerates. They are small businesses run by people who are working very hard and who deserve to get money from the hard work that they do. But when you have like quite um, uh, a giant uh, company that comes in and says, hey, if you want access to our, our network and our kind of like infrastructure, you need to pay us 30% commission, you know, on order, you're really squeezing small businesses, you know? Yeah. And so part of our goal is, yeah, to make, that things are not just sustainable in terms of whether you are zero waste or whether you, you don't use single-use plastics, but also that you are being more uh, sustainable in, in an economic sense. You're saving some money because you can then use that money to improve your business, to become more mm -hmm. sustainable because sustainability requires investment. You know, if you're going to switch your stovetop from one that's leaking a lot of gas and, you know, like it's, it's ruining your energy bills, and you're being very inefficient with that, you, you're going to need some money. If you're spending 25,000 euros a year towards uh, paying a company, which basically is just like bleeding your dry, you might not have money left over for a new, more sustainable grill top, you know, or to have uh, more sustainable uh, fridges that have like, let's say, auto-lock functions or things like that. So the, the whole point of it is really to improve the entire sustainability ecosystem in food services. And, and so we're there to facilitate that. Diria, I'm going to uh, end our podcast by mm -hmm. making a breaking news announcement. Okay. You heard it here first. Yes. That Nuria Spiker and Beth Massa together are going to completely disrupt the takeaway and delivery industry in the best possible way. And together yes. we are going to fix everything that is wrong with takeaway and delivery, which is basically everything. Yes. Thank you sure. so much for this incredible conversation. Thank and, you. I really um, enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. And um, hey, this isn't going to be the last that sure the not. world has heard of us. <laughs> All right. Take care, my dear. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.